Hey, podcast peeps, just a heads up, we did want to take a second and include a trigger warning. This episode will discuss topics that do touch on self-harm, sexual violence, and homicide. We care about you and wanted to flag this for you. If you need to skip or pause at any point, please do. We are working on highlighting an organization to direct our listeners to. But in the meantime, please, as always, take care of yourselves and reach out to someone you trust if this stirs something in you. We'll be here if you ever want to come back. Welcome to Drinks with Defenders. I'm Addie B. Plate. And I'm Kayla Murphy. We're two law school friends turned criminal defense attorneys turned podcast hosts. We're here in this space because we now work in separate offices and miss collaborating with each other. We've been talking about creating a podcast for years where we talk about the complexities of the criminal justice system, the aspects of it that we grapple with, and the importance of what we do. At the end of a long work week, we want to sit down, have a drink with each other, and talk about the rabbit holes of criminal defense, just like we always have. So let's get into it. Cheers. Hello, and welcome to episode two of Drinks with Defenders. My name's Kayla Murphy. And I'm Addie B. Plate. Addie, how was your week? What's up? How are you? Well, admittedly, I am feeling a little bit sick today. That is part of, you know, being a podcast person part of the time and also an attorney, I guess, in the day-to-day, we kind of go through the petri dish of life. So I think I caught up, caught a little bit of a bug somewhere probably this past week. Um, I did have some clients that I was visiting out at the hospital last week, so I might have got something there. So um, admittedly, not the best, but uh, that's real life. And so tonight I am drinking tea. Um, I know that we said we would do a themed drink every episode, but for tonight, my drink is tea. Kayla, what are you drinking? I am drinking Titan Cider, and it's that apricot cider, and it's great. Oh, okay. Highly recommend. We got a cider girly in the house. How was the rest of your week? Hell yeah. It was fine. (laughs) It was fine. (laughs) Admittedly, uh, I don't know. I guess uh, my little notes here of like, you know, things we could kind of touch base about was, um, I remember you telling me the other week about somebody calling you something like really derogatory in court. Do you remember that? Yeah, I literally got done with a restitution hearing. It was my first one. It was my first type of like a civil matter that is in that ballpark. And uh, we got done and I got (laughs) yelled out in the hallway and had to be escorted to my car by the bailiff. Yeah, I remember that. Wild, dude. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you've been in this game a little bit longer than I have. So I'm sure you have more like horror stories and battle stories than I do. Well, I mean, I brought it up just because I recently had something pretty similar happen to me. I was called like a bitch twice and in the courtroom. (laughs) The person wasn't like a client. They were just like a random person who was there with a defendant who, again, like I didn't represent. But uh, whatever. Long story short, I just like I was doing preliminary appearances okay. where basically you just tell people what's up, like what they can expect, like 
judge is going to tell you what the maximum sentence is. They're going to appoint you a lawyer. They're going to give you a new court date, give you some easy rules to follow, send you on your way. Right. So it was um, as part of our contract, right? I had mentioned like doing some public defense work at my firm. We do prelims, you know, on X amount of days. And yeah, so I was there. I was just trying to like give people some general advice. And yeah, it was pretty crazy. He was just very hostile. And that's just something I've kind of... Sorry, go ahead. I was going to ask, like, how did you shake that off? Because I mean, it's one thing to... I think you expect a certain amount of hostility, but in a prelim when the stakes are pretty low in terms of like other court hearings that you do, and it's kind of a more introductory court appearance and it's not coming from opposing counsel or anything in in that regard. It's just a random person that says that to you. Like, how did that make you feel? How did you shake that off? It's okay if you didn't too. I mean, I think I'm still a little bit shaken. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I honestly like, I totally didn't like, I don't know, dude. It's just like, it has me thinking about this just kind of like, subtle contempt yeah. that I feel from a lot. Well, I guess I shouldn't say a lot, right? But by like a subset of men. Yeah. I guess like when I'm interact, both when I'm interacting with them in my capacity as like an attorney, but then also just like, just in day-to-day life, right? Like I was just at the gas station the other day and this guy like cut in front of all of like me and like these other people in line. And I'm like, you know, hey, like we were in line, you know, just normal interaction. Like, you know, just like he must have not noticed. Yeah. And he was just so rude. He's like, you weren't in line, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, I was just standing on the COVID sticker, you know, those like little stickers for the Mm -hmm. lines, like to keep people. Anyway, it was like a whole thing. Where you're six feet apart from the next person. Yeah, totally. And just like, just, yeah, I don't know. You feel it. You know what I mean? When people just like, yeah, are aggressive, have an animosity. Totally, dude. I, I don't know what it is. I mean, if it's any, if it's any consolation back to my experience, I was covering this hearing for another attorney in my office. So it wasn't my case and this whole thing happened. And when I talked to the attorney whose case it was about what happened, his response was that I did a good job. And that was the feedback that I got from everyone in my office when I, you know, told them what happened. And I think that in this profession, having, you know, a bit of you're gonna rub some feathers and hopefully, you know, don't be a bad attorney, but like, that's not what happened in either of these cases, right? With you, your experience or mine, but you're going to upset some people and things are going to be said and you're going to make people mad. And at the end of the day, you just have to advocate for your client. And if you do that zealously into the best of your ability, you're of course going to get some bad names thrown your way. And so it made me feel better hearing that from the other attorney. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that if you're getting called a bitch at the end of the day, you're probably a badass in the courtroom. So love that. Adding a stripe to your to your name. It's I think that <laughs> every time a female attorney or a criminal defense attorney gets called a bitch, an angel gets its wings. So I mean, just 
take that in stride. And I'm sorry that that happened. And I appreciate you bringing it up because it's like these things you want to shake them off and just move on with your work week. But that's not how it goes, right? For sure. And like part of, you know, our vision and and um, something that you actually thought about was creating a space to be honest and transparent about like what it's really like to practice law in the day to day. And so, you know, there it is. Right. And we talked about that in our introduction. If people want to know more about what we're doing here, I would suggest you go listen to that. Um, But yeah, there was a piece of it where we're talking about the space that we want to create and not just content that we want to dive into. And I think that it's just important for us to have the honest conversations and unpack what's going on before we just dive into what we're doing with the podcast. Because it would not feel real if we did it otherwise. So. I appreciate that that this is like the check-in that we're doing at the beginning of this episode. I think it's important for us to do that with each other. And, you know, to our listeners too, check in with yourself. If you have something that really upset you, like that's okay. But at the end of the day, if you're doing a good job in some spaces, people are going to have something to say about it. Well said. Today, we are going to be talking about forensic science. And um, you picked this topic. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the reason that it's really interested me is because, like, basically, our understanding of science is always evolving, right? And I think about these types of, um, or I guess, I don't know, these different like methodologies of like evidence that we used to rely on, right? Like, didn't we used to measure people's skulls and it's like, based on that or their facial features, like you're more or less likely to commit a crime, right? And they're like polygraphs. That's so wild. Right? There's like all of these kinds of like wild types of forensic science. And we think like, this is so crazy. We know this isn't reliable. It's it's just, it's unbelievable that people ever thought that they were legit, right? We had someone come to my office actually and like show us how polygraphs work. I think that they're still used in some spaces in in Idaho. That's cool. Yeah. And so I got to watch like somebody administer, like show us how you'd get set up to one. And yeah, they're wild. So I mean, to your point, there's some there's some science that has been relied upon in, in the court setting that is just it's like, how did we ever use that? Or like, how is this still being used? And, you know, I think polygraphs, they serve a purpose. I think in some, I know that some people in my office have used them for some cases. I haven't had to use them in any of mine yet, but they are like crazy that there are some measurements that are kind of getting faded out, you know? Yeah, for sure. That's so interesting. Like they used them to further their defense. I think so would be my under, my understanding because I believe it was one used for a client of ours for a specific case. So we had somebody from a polygraph company come and talk to our office one week and it was really interesting. So yeah. Hmm. But anyways, continue. I, I think you were wanting to talk about like bite mark evidence, which is just giving Ted Bundy 
I guess he's just going to be a theme of our <laughs> of our podcast. But um, yeah, so for sure. Basically, there have been some really damning reports in recent history that have thrown some like serious shade at the use of most types of forensic science uh, used in courtrooms today. So I used a variety of sources. We'll certainly be um, citing all of them. However, I wanted to specifically shout out uh, Inside the Cell by Erin Murphy. Um, no relation, but it's a great book. I mean, she she talks mostly about DNA evidence in that book, but she gives a bit of a primer on other types of forensic sciences and just like, you know, different issues and different considerations um, that we don't usually think about. Kayla, I love that. I love that you're doing plugs for books on this too. You are so well read that I think <laughs> if anything, people are going to get a bunch of recommendations of other things to go read if they don't want to just learn from us. And I and I love that. You've always been that way. So I, I just, I think it's so cool. You were that way too. <laughs> you're a voracious reader. So <laughs> I look forward to your recommendations. <laughs> so according to the Innocence Project, uh, nearly a quarter of all people who have been exonerated since 1989 were wrongfully convicted based in part on unreliable forensic science. Uh, So the National Research Council published a report in 2009 that found that almost all types of forensic science practices had major issues. Uh, A quote from that report says, with the exception of nuclear DNA analysis, no forensic method has been rigorously shown to have the capacity to consistently and with a high degree of certainty, demonstrate a connection between evidence and a specific individual or source. You are giving me chills right now because I, in my notes for this episode, have that exact quote typed out in my notes. Look at us vibing. Yeah, I have that exact quote um, from this report. The report's titled Strengthening Forensic Science in the United States, The Path Forward, if anybody wants to go read it. Um, But I have that exact quote pulled as well. So... uh, that that's crazy. <laughs> We're on the same page. I love it. Uh, the FBI has made their own changes based on their, you know, ever evolving understanding of forensic science. They actually stopped using bullet lead analysis in 2005. The FBI also published their own report in 2015 that stated that errors were uncovered in at least 90% of testimony that they had presented to courts in regard to microscopic hair analysis. And I mean, this is just like scratching the surface, right? Right. Before we get into these specific methods of forensic science, we kind of need to discuss how this evidence makes its way into the courtroom at all. In criminal courts, the judge acts as the gatekeeper. Lawyers will make arguments to the court about what evidence should or should not be admitted. And using the rules of evidence, the judge will make her determination over what evidence gets admitted. Right. So when it comes to admitting scientific evidence, most state courts will use one of two standards. And those standards are the Fry test and the Delbert test. So the Fry test was established back in 1923. And with that test, the judge is basically just looking at whether the scientific evidence or testimony that's being offered has been generally accepted as being legit in that scientific field. This standard's used in some states. Then we have the Delbert test. This came about a little later in 1993. And this is the standard that's used by federal courts and um, state courts as well. 
So I'm going to quote the, or well, I am going to quote the Cornell Law Students Legal Encyclopedia's uh, definition of this rule. So that's cool. <laughs> Under the Delbert standard, the factors that may be considered in determining whether the methodology is valid are one, whether the theory or technique in question can be and has been tested, two, whether it has been subjected to peer review and publication, three, its known or potential error rate for the existence and maintenance of standards controlling its operation, and five, whether it has attracted widespread acceptance within a relevant scientific community. So uh, Washington, where I practice, uses the Fry test. And interestingly, Addie, Idaho, always throwing the curveballs. Always. Uh, they, <laughs> they don't use either test. Of course, they have like their own little rule. Why am I not surprised? I know. Uh, they use Idaho Rule of Evidence uh, 702. And that rule says that a witness who is qualified as an expert by knowledge, skill, experience, training, or education may testify in the form of an opinion or otherwise that the expert's scientific, technical, or other specialized knowledge will help the trier of fact to understand the evidence or to determine a fact in the issue. So there you go. That's very odd. I liked the the factors of the other test. It's like, you know, balancing all of the considerations. That's super interesting. And of course, Idaho has their own variation of things. Also, I was thinking about this while you were talking about it. We also took evidence together, didn't we? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we're just going through all of the classes that we took together in law school. We took evidence together. I think we talked about last time that we took legal pro together, which is the ethics class. And we talk, took criminal law together. Um, so we're just going to go through all of these classes that this is like ringing a bell. I kind of remember a little bit about expert testimony. And I was like, oh yeah, I, I was sitting next to you in that class as well. That's a throwback. <laughs> oh my God. You have such a good memory. I don't know about that, but yeah, that's so wild. I'm impressed. I'm don't be. Okay. So I know that with, I mean, I'm curious as to your take just at the outset. With expert testimony, I just also think immediately like one like battle of the experts, right? Like you're talked you talk about that in law school. Like a side brings an expert in, and really like the only way to refute another expert is, you know, if the prosecution has expert testimony, usually the defense has to put an expert on the stand as well. And it just becomes like the battle of the experts. I haven't had a case where I've had to have an expert you know, testify, but have you ran into that yet? I haven't run into that, but I'm, ex I mean, I'm not necessarily excited, but um, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting, right? It's right. just whoever's more believable, question mark. Interesting. But I mean, the jury or I mean, they're just like citizens, right? Who don't necessarily have any like specialized knowledge to determine what expert is the most reliable. So I wonder how much of it comes down to just like who presents better. You know what I mean? Right. right. And who they're more compelled by, right? Which is, I mean, we should get into juries really on another day because I think juries are fascinating. And we've talked about this before. And oh, I know that absolutely we, we love Wadir, but, um, and we just love the idea of jury selection. So I'm putting a pin in that now. We need to talk about juries one day, but forensic science, and forensic evidence has a lot of them. I think that's like a baseline thing we should discuss too. You it's you just bring in experts or, you know, 
arguably pseudo experts who talk about this theory that they have. And so to bite mark evidence, you know, you're bringing in medicine with like, I'm going to botch this, but it, what is it called when you study teeth? Ornithology? Is that what it is? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So typically the person who would be doing the bite mark analysis would be a forensic odontologist. I was close. I was a little off. Yes. Okay. Well, I could be, I could be saying it wrong, but I mean, what is it, right? So bite mark evidence is basically just the practice of comparing purported bite marks left on human skin Gross. to a person's teeth <laughs> in order to identify whether that person was the biter. Right. That's so wild. So yeah, you know, it is like pretty morbid when you just take a step back, I guess, and think about it. Right. Um, which that's what we're doing right now. So the first time I can really recall thinking about bite mark evidence was when I was doing a super deep dive into the Ted Bundy case. There it is. Oh, for sure, dude. So I mean, as you, Addie, and I'm sure other Bundy scholars out there are already aware. The forensic odontologist testimony uh, stating that Bundy's teeth matched the marks left on Lisa Levy's body um, were a key piece of evidence presented against him in the Chi, o- Chi Omega murders in Florida. I think it's, I think it, I think it's Chi Omega girl. Dude, thank you. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. She's a she's a legal scholar, but she's she's not a sorority girl. <laughs> I wish though. I always wanted to be, but I was married so young, it was just never really in my, you know, I don't know, path. Right. So you were you were in a deep dive of Ted Bundy. Which by the way, like But now I'm I... like so humbled. <laughs> I was not trying to shade you. I just, you know. Freaking idiot. I was, I was, you know, I'm more exposing myself because I went to Catholic school for a very long time and took Latin. So like, it was more me telling on myself. That, I like, love that. Yeah. So do not take it personally. It was me just being like, that's not how you say that in like the most annoying way. <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing about this too is that I was thinking before we go into your deep dive of it too, I think it's just fascinating at the outset that Ted Bundy, didn't he, because of this, try to change his teeth at one point too? Didn't he like file them and try to alter his teeth too at one point? Does that ring a bell? So, so I could be mistaken, but from my recollection, they sprung this on him so that he wouldn't have an opportunity to like fuck around with his teeth. I mean, he did do so many other things. So got to give it to the state for trying to, you know, outsmart somebody that was always doing the most. The most. The most. Yeah. So how how do you... Okay. One more time. The sorority. It's Kai. Kai. That is so not intuitive. Yeah. C-H makes like a K sound. So it's Kai Omega. Thank you so much, <laughs> resident Latin scholar. She's having an existential crisis. <laughs> <laughs> Can I breathe? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, I mean, 
on that kind of high note, like bringing it back down, this was a really like fucked up crime. I don't know if you like remember the details. But oh, I do. Basically, he like, right? He breaks into the sorority house. He savagely attacks these four women. And it, right. was, it was terrible. It all happened in a span of like 15 minutes. Right. We all know that Bundy was guilty of these and like many other heinous crimes. But thinking about these murders specifically and like the basis of his conviction, I mean, I think that we can all agree that as like a society, we would want to make sure that that conviction was as solid as possible. Right. We wouldn't want unreliable evidence used to convict somebody like him, right? Because it could potentially lead to like the conviction being overturned, right? Making it like vulnerable to attack on appeal. Right. And that was such a concern with his case. And I think many cases similar, but especially with his, because he was, you know, kind of running from the law for quite some time. I mean, he escaped things in Colorado and then, um, and he was in the middle of some prosecution in Colorado and then ended up in Florida. And then this all happened. So I think that the, to the prosecution's credit in Florida, they were, you would think, and I think they were trying to have a very solid case against him out of fear for him not being properly prosecuted. Obviously, we know more now than we did then. Again, this was, you know, the fever dream of true crime. Things were a lot different then. And you're going to obviously talk about that. But I I think they were trying. They just didn't know better at that point in time. I think you're right. And I recall reading somewhere that this was like one of the first cases that used this type of, or I should say like that had this type of evidence admitted in court. So I don't know, something to consider. But on that note, I mean, the use of this type of unreliable evidence is disturbing enough in the context of like a clearly disturbed human being who's capable of heinous crimes potentially being released from prison on the basis of having his conviction, you know, overturned because of unreliable evidence. But I mean, on the flip side, it's perhaps even more disturbing to consider the consequences of that same evidence being used to convict an innocent person. Absolutely. Right. So on that note, I want to talk about Robert Lee Stinson. Robert was 20 years old in the fall of 1984. On November 3rd of that year, 63-year-old... Oh, I apologize in advance. I'm going to um, mess this up. Iona, uh, Sai, Chaz. Well, Addie, how do you read that? I think it's Iona, Sai, Chaz, but her name okay. for our listeners is spelled I-O-N-E is her first name. And her last name is C-Y-C-H-O-S-V. And for for the record, we tried. We tried uh, getting the proper pronunciation. Um, but this is us just struggling through that as well. We appreciate you bearing witness to the struggle. So Always. Um, <laughs> unfortunately. There's a lot of them. Poor, yeah. Oh, amen to that. So this poor woman was dealing with some struggles of her own. Unfortunately, she was brutally assaulted and murdered. And investigators ended up finding eight wounds on her body that they had identified as bite marks. Basically, a couple of doctors looked at the wounds. The, they said that these were bite marks. And they, they had made the determination that 
whoever had left these bite marks was missing a front tooth. Oh. Yeah. So, Robert... How do you even come to that conclusion? Right. Okay. And I mean, you have to remember, too, like, they're just looking at bruises. Right. Like, right? Bite marks are just bruises. So they're just looking at these marks, which they're like making the determination that number one, these marks are bite marks, and right. then making the determination too that like the person who left these had a missing front tooth. So that's so crazy. Yeah, it really is. So Robert lived near the location where the victim's body was discovered. And so police went to speak with him. And during the course of their conversation, the police observed that Robert was missing a front tooth. And based primarily on... The fact that he doesn't have a front tooth. Yeah. Right. He was convicted. Okay. Yeah, this was the only physical evidence that linked him to the crime. The only other sketchy thing was that he had made some inconsistent statements about where he was at the time of the murder. But he ended up spending over 23 years of his life in prison before the Uh Innocence Project um, used DNA and got him released in 2009. And just a few years later, in 2012, DNA evidence led to the arrest and conviction of Moses Price for the crimes. Wow. So DNA evidence got him exonerated and it helped to convict the actual perpetrator. That is just because where this guy lives and the fact that he doesn't have a front tooth, he's the primary suspect. Literally. Wow. Yes. Mm-hmm. Not even suspect, they convicted him. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> of murder. Yeah. It's and crazy. He spent, and he spent a lot of time in jail. That is wild. Yeah. And I, in a way, mean to blame Robert for what happened because it was not his fault, right? This was a major injustice, regardless of these statements that he made to cops. Right. But it just reminds me of something that I heard um, another podcast host talk about. I don't know if you've ever listened to the prosecutor's podcast, Addy, but it's actually really good. And it's hosted by a couple of prosecutors. Well. (laughs) One of them, uh, right? (laughs) Brett. He was saying that uh, it's such a prosecutor name. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's such a prosecutor name. But he basically was saying that he believes that a lot of these falsely convicted people end up that way because they lie to the police about something. And then the police end up honing in and getting tunnel vision, right? And narrowing in on them because they figure, okay, if a boy's going to lie to me about this, like probably he actually did it. Right. And so. I don't know. I just thought that was something interesting to think about. And I think that is probably true. I think that being consistent in talking to police is really not as easy as people probably think that it is. To be honest, I have a bit of frustration with it because in court, if you, you know, we learn about witnesses having inconsistent statements and how that can cast a shadow of a doubt potentially on their credibility. But if you're being a person being investigated, and the stakes are way higher, and who knows the circumstances as to why you're talking to law enforcement, where you're talking to them, the environment, what your prior experiences with law enforcement, any of those things. And you're obviously very scared, and there's a reason that they're probably investigating you. I'm not surprised that people aren't 100% consistent with their statements to law enforcement. And the memory, like memory is weird. People have things come back to them in different points and 
maybe you don't remember exactly what you said and now you're trying to like add more context. And so I, I just think people are, you know, we talked about this last time, people are human. And it's not odd to me that people say things in bits and pieces. And I mean, I think being completely contradictory is one thing, but, you know, the roboticness of being consistent, who is that person that's going to be completely forthright and comfortable and forthright with the cops when they talk to them? Like, I'm not surprised. Yeah, for sure. I think that is why people get convicted and why people then become like, you know, more of a suspect in a case. It's also very like, to me, it's intuitive that people would be kind of wishy-washy with law enforcement. And maybe that's why I'm a public defender, <laughs> but, and not a prosecutor as our, as our friend Brett is, but he's there. <laughs> Amen. So circling back to bite mark evidence, I mean, just how bad is it? Right? Yeah. Most of this information that I'm about to share from the Innocence Project, if you're you guys are interested, highly recommend that you check them out. They have a great website that has some really interesting articles on it and information. And I feel like we're constantly going to be sharing their stuff because we shared some of their stuff last episode and they have a plethora of knowledge on their website. They do amazing work. I think they will always kind of be a pioneer in terms of topics that we talk about, right? They are amazing attorneys and activists that do amazing work. So yes, go to their website, read everything, go find all of the articles that they have about a variety of topics. I feel like everything that I go to to their page and just like digest, I'm impressed with. So and impressed by, I should say. Okay, so a bit of an elementary rundown. So the practice of matching marks left on human skin to an individual person using the impression of their teeth aka bite mark evidence, is not a scientifically validated analysis. So just how bad is bite mark evidence? Again, we'll note that we um, got a lot of information for this episode and for our previous episodes from the Innocence Project. They have a great website with a lot of really interesting information, and we highly encourage you to know. So bite mark evidence is the practice of matching marks left on human skin to an individual person using the impression of their teeth. This is not a scientifically validated methodology, and there are multiple issues with this practice. First, the way that our teeth are arranged has not been proven to be unique, like from each individual person. Wow. Uh, second, it's difficult to determine the cause of a bruise be that left from yeah. a bite mark or otherwise. <laughs> like right. people bruise differently. And sometimes uh, somebody may bruise more easily than another person. Uh, other factors that would, you know, potentially have an effect on this are things like age, right? Or the amount of fat on the area that was injured. So this means that the same person could theoretically bite multiple people, right? With their same teeth, <laughs> But like each time it could leave a different impression, right? Leading at analysts to think that they're left by different people because 100%. you have all of those other factors that are contributing to the actual marks or impressions like left on the skin. Right. So a really uh, remarkable study was conducted in 2015 
where two experts who work in this field had asked multiple practitioners to examine marks left on a body and to make determinations about those marks using like a decision tree that the researchers had put together. So, Fascinating. Okay. Yeah. Notably, one of the questions or decisions that they wanted the practitioners to make was whether the marks that they were examining were in fact a bite mark or were, you know, caused by something else. So the researchers found that their participants could not even agree on whether the injury that they were examining was a bite mark. Uh, one of the two experts who had conducted the study actually stopped conducting bite, bite mark analyses after reviewing his findings. Cool. Um, so, yeah, however, despite like all of this information about the unreliability of this type of forensic science, it's still being used in courtrooms today. No way. So, um, I know. So on that note, Addie, tell us about another disturbing uh, forensic science. Oof, you set the bar so high once again. <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, well, okay. So when we were talking about this, we, you know, kind of jumped off of bite mark evidence because um, that was something that we both thought was so interesting from the Ted Bundy case. And then we were talking about some of the other commonly, I guess, like investigated forensic evidence that have been, I guess, frowned upon in the last you know, 20 years or anything like that. And it being kind of um, disproven in terms of what you just said in in, in analyses and um, the doubt being cast on their applicability to cases. So when we were talking, um, we talked briefly about arson cases. And admittedly, I am going to say that arson and arson cases have not been a big driving point of my attention when it comes to true crime. So like my knowledge of arsonists is it needs some work. I know more about serial killers and other cases than I do about arsonists. So I'm learning that this is a gap in my knowledge. But um, I also learned from researching um, what's happened with, you know, um, fire investigations in instances of arson, arson or alleged arson. Um, I also don't know that much about fire terminology, which was quite interesting to me as well. So I guess a preliminary question is, Kayla, do you know the term flash over fire? Have you ever heard that before? No, I have not. <laughs> okay, that makes me feel a lot better. So you can't say Chi Omega. Neither one of us knew what flash over fire is. <laughs> it's a learning experience today. <sighs> okay. So something about um, the arson cases is that when I was looking at a lot of the cases, a lot of the instances where arson was suspected, since then, they have been deemed that they, the cause of the fire, because obviously a fire occurred, could have resulted from a flashover fire. And I was like, I have no idea what that is. So a flashover fire is a thermal, I, I gave it a Google. And Google told me that it is a thermally driven event during which every combustible surface exposed to thermal radiation in a compartment or enclosed space rapidly and simultaneously ignites. I am not smart enough to unpack that in terms of understanding physics. I'm going to say that a flashover fire sounds a lot like uh, just something spontaneously combusts and ignites. And so cases where they... Um, we're investigating, you know, fire patterns in terms of arson. In time, they have 
you know, when people were reinvestigating them, determined that it could have resulted from a flashover fire. In, in that, similarly to the bite mark evidence, there's been a lot of debunking about arson investigations. I found an article where it talks about a gentleman named Doug Starr, who is the co-director of Boston University Center for Science and Medical Journalism. He wrote an article for Discover Magazine where he examined arson cases that relied on now just wildly debunked theories about how fires start. And in the months of research that he conducted, he turned up at least two dozen cases. One of the earliest cases that Mr. Starr looked into was that of a 16-year-old named, uh, I think it's Lewis Taylor, who was convicted of 28 counts of murder for setting the 1970 Pioneer Hotel on fire in Tucson, Arizona. The evidence that was found on Taylor's person was several matches in his pocket and fire investigators found what they believed to be evidence of two fire sets in the hallway of the hotel. The conclusion that Mr. Back to the flashover fire, um, it said Mr. Starr told the media that at the behest of an attorney, several fire investigations looked at the evidence and said it looked like a classic accidental flashover fire. Separate from Taylor's cases, I think it's important to note that several states, Kayla, I know that you like to go into kind of what states are doing with debunked forensic evidence. I found that seven states have, according to the Innocence Project, have enacted laws to clarify that wrongfully convicted people can get back into court based on discredited forensic evidence. Those states are California, Connecticut, Michigan, Nevada, Texas, West Virginia, and Wyoming. So in Texas, I found an article from 2011 that said that the Texas Forensic Science Commission asked that all arson cases in the, in the state be reviewed. That amounted to between 750 and 900 arson cases in the state alone. To the point about Starr's findings for the article that he wrote, he said that early fire investigations were based on apprentice-type knowledge passed down from the observations of previous investigators. I also learned in looking into arson cases and how they have been debunked, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, which I didn't even know was a thing, they have something that I think is really interesting. They have forensic science laboratories. They have three of them, but the, I believe their inaugural one was in Maryland in 2011. The lab that they have in Maryland recreated fires from three murder cases, which I don't even know how they would do that, but I found that fascinating. In all of them from the recreations, the prosecutors ended up dropping the charges against the suspects because the lab determined what officials thought might have happened actually didn't. As I mentioned, there's three of their forensic science laboratories. I believe the other two are in Georgia and California. According to their website, uh, these laboratories are staffed with highly trained forensic chemists, forensic biologists, engineers, fingerprint specialists, firearm and toolmark examiners, document and analysts, and administrative personnel who work together to identify leads and help bring criminals to justice which I just found fascinating. I was like, who even works at these labs? What are they doing? And they're just getting cases from, I'm guessing, regionally. And if they have cause to recreate a fire. I know that when I was looking at just kind of theories, they think that there might be like, you know, shards of glass found in these fires. And like, you know, people would go to the scene of the fire and based on what they were observing, theorize how they thought that fire was started. And that's wild because you're just like, I mean, to an extent, it kind of reminds me of like 
the Harry Potter class where they're looking in the cup and like it's they're just making like you know it's like sorcery like you're looking at this fire and you're like oh how did it start and I just kind of got that visual and I was like that's so interesting and you know to the point about Mr. Taylor's case in this hotel I mean it's the 70s right like I think everything was highly flammable at that point you know fire laws in terms of materials and buildings were a lot different so I'm assuming that if like something caught a blaze from a flashover fire that it just went throughout the hotel and so I'm not surprised that 28 people were were killed in the fire now it's horrible isn't that wild and then I also read this case and I should have put it in my notes but there was something about another case where there was a man who I believe was convicted for allegedly setting his house ablaze. And I think his wife and maybe his daughter were in the house and the man had burns on himself. And they were thinking it was just some weird theory that the state I think was presenting where like basically alleging that the marks on him were so that he wouldn't seem suspicious. But like later they actually found out that he was in the house too when it was on fire. And so it's just crazy that it's like it extended from just like the science of how the fire started to theories about who was in the building at the time the building was on fire. So arson, very interesting. I think that I, I now have a new found interest in, in buildings being on fire and suspicious circumstances of buildings being <laughs> on fire and then people getting charged with murder on top of arson, right? I have so many questions. This is really <laughs> intriguing to me. So I guess first, like, yeah, I mean, there are still arson investigations that happen today. I mean, are sure. those legit? Are there just like certain like methodologies that they were using in the investigations that weren't, you know, that I weren't mean, reliable, but like there are reliable ways or... Based on what I found, it seems like they, you know, have different experts that do like fire recreation. And so they they have more legitimate practices of, of determining how a fire started or investigating arson. But at the time, when a lot of these were first investigated, it was like they would send somebody, I'm assuming, to the scene and the person would make a theory based on what they saw at the scene, how the fire was Created. And I'm assuming now they probably, you know, send things off to a laboratory and test the materials in terms of like if they're flammable. You know, I'm sure they also have like chemical assessments that they do to determine what like started the fire in terms of if it was like a chemical thing. Um, and, and, and that might point more to arson. Um, I know that like a lot of arson cases that I've seen have to do with like fireworks than going rogue or something like that. I'm assuming, and I, again, I wouldn't know that if there's something to do with like arson in that regard, they would be able to test the evidence that they found at the scene to determine what the chemical compounds of it are, which is different than just like looking at it and making a guess, which is just, <laughs> it's wild to me that that's how it originally kind of started. And then you just piece together oh, this person has matches in their pocket. They're clearly an arsonist. Like I'm a 16-year-old boy has matches on him. He's an arsonist. Wild. So crazy. Thank you for teaching me about that. I definitely want to do a deeper dive. Deeper dive into arson. I think it's interesting. The other thing, and we're going to 
swerve into controversial territory. When we were looking at forensic evidence and we found both pulled that quote from um, the report that we talked about earlier. I found an article from The Intercept and I'm trying to figure out, let me look at my notes. Who are the authors on that? Um, Liliana Segura, I hope I'm saying that right, and Jordan Smith. And they wrote an interesting article for The Intercept. In that article, they had a little blurb about shaken baby syndrome. I think it's very controversial in terms of forensic evidence because basically my understanding of shaken baby syndrome is that evidence is presented that then, you know, experts come and testify based on things like brain scans, how the child was presenting demeanor, other potential physical evidence that was found on the baby to reach a conclusion that the diagnosis is shaken baby syndrome. I saw that and I just know that in my head, when I hear shaken baby syndrome, it is such a buzzword in terms of like a medical diagnosis, right? And it is at the heart of a lot of pretty rough cases where a child is involved. And I found this in their article. Um, I know that, again, I'm going to be controversial here, but in their article, it says, Although it remains wildly enshrined in medical literature, the diagnosis once known as shaken baby syndrome is a cautionary tale. First coined in 1971 by a pediatric neurosurgeon who identified a triad of symptoms as proof that an infant was subjected to violent shaking, the concept has since been thoroughly debunked. Today, shaken baby syndrome is an emblem of the kind of junk science that sends innocent people to prison. The National Registry of Exonerations, which I believe you talked about earlier, Kayla, lists 17 cases involving a shaken baby syndrome diagnosis. In 16 of those, it was ultimately determined that there was no crime at all. The most recent exoneration took place last year. Um, Again, I believe this article was written a few years ago, but... Anyways, in the article, it says the most recent exoneration took place last year from when the article was written. In the case of Davian Johnson, a Sacramento man accused of violently shaking his four-month-old baby girl to death. The defendant was only, Mr. Johnson was only 18 years old when he called 911 to report that his child was unresponsive. He spent 10 years in prison before prosecutors finally dismissed the charges against him in January 2018. And then the Innocent Project talked about it a little bit briefly as well. They said the doctors, I I believe that there was, there's kind of a bit, my understanding is that there is some debate in the medical community about shaken baby syndrome. And there was an article, I think, written for the Washington Post that followed several doctors in, in kind of grappling with this. But the Innocent Project writes that the doctor's uh, journeys from supporters to skeptics expose the uncertainty at the heart of a medical diagnosis that has fueled hundreds of abuse and murder cases. In courtrooms across the country, the doubting doctors are now using the same evidence that once supported a shaking conviction, medical records, autopsy reports, and brain scans to challenge the diagnosis. Um, Again, the uh, article from the Washington Post chronicled the stories of nine of those doctors through interviews, documents, and trial transcripts. I appreciated this part because I think it, it, again, not to be insensitive with the content on this podcast because these are real people's lives, but uh, the, the part from the Innocent Project, I think is pretty on point with this. It says the issue is not whether violent shaking can harm babies, even doctors who dispute the diagnosis. Say shaking can d- damage an infant's fragile neck, torso, or spine. 
but the doctors say that shaking has not been shown to produce the conditions often attributed to shaken baby syndrome, namely bleeding on the surface of the brain, bleeding in the back of the eyes, and brain swelling. And I found that fascinating. I just wanted to do a little blurb of it because it was in that bigger article about forensic evidence. I know that it, you know, becomes, it is a very heavy thing that could be debated in courtrooms, especially if there is potentially a death of the child involved. Kayla, I would love to know your thoughts because it, they're basically saying all of these things that culminated, you know, I don't think it's, it's kind of a different take on the issue that we were originally addressing where it's like the evidence, like I think brain scans are pretty solid, right? All of these things are pretty solid on their own, but they're saying that these culmination of things have kind of created like a pseudo diagnosis or so the argument goes. And, uh, and then it, you know, has resulted in wrongful convictions. I would love to know your take. Thank you for bringing this up. I think it's really interesting. It sounds like this type of forensic science is just right on the precipice of, right. you know, potentially becoming one of these other types of forensic sciences that we have just learned about that are not reliable and that have resulted in numerous wrongful convictions. So yeah, I appreciate you kind of speaking truth to power in a sense. And I think that it's our job as advocates to really think critically about these types of forensic uh, evidence. Uh, what am I trying to say? These, these types of uh, forensic sciences and the evidence that the state tries to present based on them, because it's easy to just kind of accept something that's wrapped up in a pretty little science bow that seems legit and to not really think too critically of it and to just accept it. But we can't do that as advocates, right? And we don't want the jury to do that either. And I think that that's a really easy hole for people to fall down, particularly when we think about things like the CSI effect, right? Where juries always want to see like, forensic science and right, physical evidence. And we're learning every day that these types of, you know, scientific testimonies that are presented in courtrooms all across the country have serious issues. So right. it's a really important topic to explore. And I'm really glad that we dived into it today. We're, of course, just scratching the surface. Right. Addie, any final thoughts on, on forensic science? I mean, I think you said it very well. And juries truly are drawn like moths to flames when it comes to physical evidence and wanting to see, you know, science-backed stuff or pseudoscience-backed stuff. And and so if you have something that tells a compelling thing to the jury, it's going to be more believable to them. And, you know, no fault of the jury, they're people. Of course, they're going to be compelled by, you know, something that has the CSI effect, right? In the same light, you know, to the point about why I wanted to bring up the story at the end too, it is just so interesting the way that I think bias can play a role in some of this. Um, and if you just have something that kind of connects these dots that don't make sense and then just throw a little bit of science at it, it's really easy to get swept up in. And um, it's just so interesting, the development in terms of like how it plays a role in a case and how it comes out in court. And, you know, a lot of that with like the bite mark evidence and stuff that that has kind of, and, and, you know, we talked about polygraphs earlier, that was a little bit before like our time, but I think that there will continue to be um, scientific 
methodology that will be challenged during the course of our careers. And it's fascinating. I completely agree. Yeah, I just, I just can't get over like how much of an easy out it is to just rely on the quote unquote science, right? And that's what we're taught to do. And typically that's the right thing to do, right? But when it comes to forensic science, there are a lot of things with the science goes down in a lab when we're dealing with a crime scene and people and all of these different variables. Kind of wanted to end it on some action points. So the inner, well, I mean, I don't know. The the Innocence Project really just had two primary recommendations for how to fix this problem. So first, um, Addie, you were talking about this earlier. Uh, States can pass statutes that basically create a path for convicted people to get back into court when there's been a change in the in forensic science that in the forensic science that was used to convict them. So you you had mentioned earlier um, states passing statutes in regard to forensic science, right? And yeah, this is just like another statute they can pass that just helps to account for the fact that this science is ever evolving. And we need to take that into consideration, even with these cases that we think are just closed and done and out of sight and out of mind. It's like, you know, if it's not legit, we got to circle back. Right. So they also recommend that prosecutors, defense attorneys, and judges all really educate themselves about forensic science and to be skeptical and to be thorough. Right. So listeners, you know, it, It can be really tempting, but try not to take the easy way out and to really think critically about these types of things and this type of evidence. I mean, we know that our criminal justice system is really flawed and that we incarcerate a ridiculous amount Amount of of people. And most of the time, forensic science is being deployed by the state in order to secure convictions against their citizens. So let's demand to live in a society where only reliable types of evidence are being considered when determining whether to deprive somebody of their freedom. Right. And let's make the courtrooms a place where the standard is high. So on that note... Um, we hope you have a great week and that uh, you will join us next time. I mean, yeah, I'm going to hold up my tree mug and still cheers you. Sick girlies can have fun on this podcast too. Representation. I love it. Cheers. <laughs> cheers. <laughs>